Well, we've been in a series that we've entitled Unfinished, and we are in Acts chapter 11 uh, today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find uh, a pew Bible or a chair Bible, and you can find our passage on page 920. And we just finished up uh, in verses uh, 1 through 18 last week of chapter 11, where we learned that Peter had taken some heat for taking the gospel to a new group of people that uh, that they really hadn't taken the gospel to, and that was Gentiles. And we saw the conversion of a single Roman family uh, by the name of Cornelius and his entire household coming to know Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that had never happened before. And Peter takes some heat when he comes back to Jerusalem because the Jewish people of the day thought and, and were wrong in thinking that salvation was only for people who became Jewish in all of their customs and rituals and traditions. But as we come to learn is that the gospel wasn't just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles alike. And, and most all of us are here because of the work the early church did in reaching not only the Jewish nation, but all the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and if we thought what happened in Cornelius' home uh, was something big, what we're going to learn at the end of chapter 11 is even bigger because we're going to see uh, the gospel go forth not only from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but now we start reaching to the uttermost parts of the world. We're going to move to a city called Antioch and we're going to uh, be looking at what God was doing in the lives of Gentiles in the city of Antioch and how he uses the church that was started in Antioch to change the world. And we are one of the results of that ministry, that work that was done 2,000 years ago. And so let's turn our attention to the scriptures this morning. And as we do, I'm going to be looking at verses 19 through 30, Acts 11, 19 through 30. And uh, once I finish reading our text, we'll pray. And then I'm going to do things a little different. I've got, uh, your bulletin says six points. That's going to scare you, right? I'm going to add a seventh point, so I'll tell you where that is. Everybody's now really getting freaked out. But six is the number of man, seven is the number of perfection, and I'm reaching for high standards today. And uh, what I want to do is take this passage and really just take some principles and applications from what we see in this storyline of, of the church at Antioch and apply it to our lives this morning. And so we'll just kind of follow the text as we work through each of these uh, different statements and uh, principles. Well, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 11. Starting in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith." And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I love sports, and I love sports talk radio, and usually when it's a downtime in the year, sports talk will come up with all kinds of discussion points, and one of the discussions that will inevitably come up in the sports talk world is who are the greatest athletes in any particular sport, and one of the things that always comes up is people will always kind of gravitate to the person that is closest to them, and I'll give you an example. When I ask you who is the greatest basketball player or answer here in Chicago is Michael Jordan, right? And we hear the name LeBron and we hear the name Kobe and we scoff. It's Michael Jordan. And we'll do that with football. We'll do that with hockey. We'll do that with baseball. And we go on. But one of the discussions that I like way more than who is the greatest player, because that can kind of be subjective, is the question, what are some of the greatest teams that have ever played? What are some of the greatest teams that um, have seemingly superseded all of their competition? And we have them in each sport. We had the 60s, the Packers ruled the world, as much as I hate to say that, okay? Uh, we have, uh, just in these last 10 years in football, the Patriots seem to own every team, going to Super Bowl after Super Bowl. We saw it here, and we were excited for it uh, in the uh, 1990s with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls winning six championships. We saw it with the Edmonton Oilers, and, and even in some ways our present-day Chicago Blackhawks who have won numerous Stanley Cups. And I could go on and on, and of course, you know, when you talk baseball, it's not the it's not the Cubs, it's the Yankees, right? Because what we have learned, I mean, Yankees, listen, I know, listen, they got like 30-some championships, and what we learned in 2005 is any group of nobodies can win a World Series, right? Amen. We could just close in prayer. I've been totally encouraged this morning. But those teams that are set apart are teams that show success over and over and over again. But one of the things that you really learn about, and what they call these teams, by the way, are dynasties. Sports dynasties. Teams that, (coughs) in many ways, elevate to a level that few, well, all dream about, few ever accomplish. And one of the things that you'll learn about a dynasty is that everybody else wants to do what you're doing. And so they want to coach like you coach. They want to run the plays like you run the plays. They want to draft players like you draft players. And people model themselves, the other teams model themselves after that one particular team. Well, this morning, The church at Antioch is a church that's a dynasty. It is a team, it's a team, it's a church that showed great success, not only for a certain period of time, but its success has gone on, not for decades, not for generations, but now for centuries. Churches have modeled themselves uh, against this church 
against what this church has done to evaluate whether or not they're doing right. And we as a church at Village do the same thing. We want to be like the church of Antioch. We want to evangelize like the church of Antioch. We want to love the Lord like the church of Antioch did. It is a model. It is an example of how we should do church. And this morning in our text, I want to look at seven observations of what made the church of Antioch a dynasty and what we can do to maybe follow in their footsteps. Now, I want to remind you, as I did in my prayer, that before we think that we can just check these things off the list, a couple things that I want you to be aware of, and I'll say it at the beginning, and I'll say it again at the end. The most important thing that you need to recognize are not the seven things that I'm going to lay out. Those are important things. Those are things that are needed within a church. Those are things we should be grabbing a hold of to the best of our ability. But I want you to notice in our text... Verse 21, if you underline in your Bible, great place to underline something in your Bible. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Listen, Antioch wasn't known for its programs. It wasn't known for its buildings. It wasn't known for its celebrity pastors. What it was known for, what Luke starts with, with the church of Antioch, was God was with them. And I want you to know, Village Bible Church, and you and I as individuals will accomplish nothing in this world, no matter how good our activities are, no matter how noble our pursuits are, we will accomplish nothing in this world if the hand of the Lord is not with us. And so every day we need to get up and we need to pray, Lord, would your hand be upon me? Lord, would your words be on my lips? Lord, would your, would your son, the mind of Christ, be my mind? Because if it's not, Jesus reminds us, apart from him, we can do nothing. And the church of Antioch understood that, and they reveled in the fact, and we surely should revel in the fact, that God's presence and power, his hand is upon us so that we might serve and honor him. Well, let's understand a couple things about this. First of all, uh, we have to ask the question, what is Antioch? Where did that come from? We've been in Jerusalem for a long time, and now all of a sudden, we learn that we're now in Antioch. What, what happened? What transpired? Notice in verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And then in verse 20 it says, and they came to Antioch, and that's where they find themselves. How in the world do we go from Jerusalem to Antioch? Well, first of all, we need to understand where in the world is Antioch. So look to the screen, and you will see a map, where you'll see at the bottom of the map, Jerusalem. And then you'll see the little red balloon on the Google map, and it tells us, by the way, from Jerusalem to Antioch is about 11 hours and 18 minutes by by car. Now, Antioch is right on, and there's not a present-day city named Antioch, but it's uh, this uh, city in Turkey, because it's right on the border of Turkey and Syria. Antike is uh, uh, the name of the town that uh, Antioch now resides. But these people left Jerusalem, and they head up to Antioch. Now, the reason why we are told is that the persecution had broken out. Well, what was the persecution over? Notice in verse 19, over Stephen. So we've got to go back to Acts chapter 8, and we've got to remember. We've got to know what's going on. And so in Acts chapter 8, if you turn a couple pages back in in verse 1, we are told, and Saul of Tarsus approved the execution of Stephen. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Well, we've gotten even farther than that. And so time has transpired, and they now find themselves now even farther than uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria, which would all be south of Beirut there in the nation of Israel. Now they are in the far-flung places of the world. And so they have run for their lives, and they find themselves in a city called Antioch. Antioch was a city of about 300,000 people. It was founded, it was built by one of the generals of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, in giving one of his four major generals, uh, in essence, a retirement gift, gave all the money and all the land for him to build Antioch, the city. And when people came into Antioch, what, what, histori- what historical accounts would say is, that they were in awe of what Antioch looked like. No money was spared in building it. The great infrastructures that were were placed, the streets, the roadways, the, the buildings were breathtaking. Many would liken it because of where it sits right on the the waterfront, like a New York City rising up from the horizon of the sea uh, to be this great metropolitan uh, place. It was the third largest city uh, of the Roman Empire. And here's the reason why. It was so centrally located for both east and west, north and south. It was a major trade route that would run right through the city of Antioch. But also, it was a port city. And if you notice, right on the Mediterranean Sea, you had the ability to take things from places like Iraq and Iran and even the Far East, and you could bring it to Antioch, and you could get it to northern Africa through the Mediterranean Sea, or even the northern parts of Europe through the waterways that were opened on the seashore of Antioch. It was a city where people could do great business. And it no doubt was a place that refugees could go and find solace and find opportunity in a place with so many people. But it was also a place of great debauchery. The temple of Daphne of Greek mythology was there. And it had become a place of great debauchery and hedonism. In fact, uh, Antioch was a place where Roman aristocrats would retire. Now they wouldn't retire to play golf or play bingo or do whatever retired people do. They went there, in essence, to sow their wild oats with all of the debauchery and perversions that were there. And so while the city had much to offer, a group of of refugees, temptation was huge. And the seeking of pleasure was the defining mark of most people who were citizens of Antioch. And what an odd place, if you really think about it, for a church to get started. But that's exactly what takes place. Now I want you to know there's a great humor in what Luke is telling us. Luke tells us that here's what's going to transpire. Notice again in chapter 8, these people are running away because of their faith. They're leaving Jerusalem because this man named Saul is hunting them down and trying to eradicate Christianity. And the devil must have been thinking, (laughs) I got this great plan. The church is growing. I am going to tempt and I'm going to lure and I'm going to push the right buttons in Saul of Tarsus' life that he will hate Christianity and he will fight tooth and nail to eradicate Christianity and destroy the spirit 
of the Christians. And that's what he does. He goes in and he rips them out of their homes. He imprisons many. We know he's already killed Stephen. No doubt he was a part of execution of others as well. And so people start running for their lives. And that's exactly what we would do. We wouldn't stay there and take it. We would run and seek safety. And I wonder if the devil's like, this is awesome. I've got this guy, and he's out eradicating, he's doing my work, my bidding, and he's destroying Christianity one by one. They're running for their lives, and when you're running for your lives, you're not all that effective for the gospel. And then God says, ha, 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 ha. I'll just save Saul. And on the road to Damascus, he saves Saul. And he's like, you know what, I'm really going to do a touchdown dance in front of the devil. I'm going to take that very man, Saul, who had these people running for their lives. They're going to run 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch, which would take two weeks by walking. I'm going to take them, and I'm going to save this guy, Saul of Tarsus, and I'm going to make him their pastor. (laughs) You can't write this stuff, people. This is crazy. And they're going to love him. And he's going to love them. You see, what the devil wants to do, God says, you know what, you think you're ruining the thing? All you're doing is helping me because I needed a church up in Antioch and your persecution drove them there. Thanks a lot, Satan. You're helping me beat you. And that's what God does. And so this church starts... And it starts to grow. And it starts to grow so much that Barnabas is called from Jerusalem. And Barnabas goes and gets Saul from Tarsus. And the two of them for a year minister and teach and train so much that these disciples become so on fire for Jesus that for the first time in their lives they're called Christians. A nickname that was supposed to be used to be derogatory, which meant the folks of Christ, okay? The Jesus people that now a word that brings great um, admiration by all those who bear its name. We are followers of the one true king, as we've sang about this morning, Jesus Christ. And so this example, this church does powerful things because the hand of the Lord is on them. Now I want to look at seven observations that I have from the text, okay? And some I'll spend a lot of time on and others will just kind of whip through them. But if we want to be this way, if we want to be a church that is used like the church in Antioch was used by God, then we need to understand it's going to involve some things. Number one, it's going to involve having ordinary people do outrageous things for God. Ordinary people do outrageous things for God. Let's look at the text in in chapter 11. It says, uh, chapter 11, verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, we need to understand, if just if you were to go back, you would see in Acts 8, 1, that those who were scattered aren't named. In fact, the ones who stay, we know by name. They're the apostles. So this group of people that are about to start this church are not Peter, James, and John. They're unnamed individuals. And the reason why they're unnamed is because they're not altogether that important from a worldly standard. They're regular, everyday folk. They're like you and me, right? 
People that don't have thousands, if not millions of people following us on Facebook or Twitter. People aren't following us with cameras because we're important. We come and go, whether in the grocery store or or at school or at work, and, and nobody really cares that we're there, right? We're just ordinary people. Well, I want you to know the amazing church that Antioch was, was not built on a celebrity pastor. It wasn't built on a big name author. It was built on the backs of ordinary people of which we have no names. And I want you to know that God does some of his best work through ordinary people. In fact, in a couple weeks, we're going to be starting a series. We're going to take a break uh, from the book of Acts, and we'll pick it up in the fall, but we're going to do a series called Heroes, I believe is the title, from the book of Hebrews, okay, from Hebrews chapter 11, and for the summer, we're going to look at one chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at all of these individuals, and none of them were really anybody famous, anybody well-known, but they were ordinary people that God used to do extraordinary things, and so here's the outrageous thing. These ordinary people who don't have a following, who don't have any kind of real notoriety or famousness to them, travel 300 miles, and they're doing so running for their lives, and the first thing they do when they get to Antioch as refugees is they start proclaiming the gospel. That's pretty outrageous, right? You've left family, you've left your job, you've left your home. You're not able to transfer all that stuff. There's not a moving truck following you as you head to Antioch. You're running for your life. And the last thing that you would think that these people would have done was to do the outrageous thing of finding a place in Antioch and starting things back up as they did before. Let's remember why they left. Because they were being hunted down for being followers of Jesus Christ. So here's the novel thing to do. Get to a new location now that you've been run out of your old location and start doing the very thing you did that got you kicked out of the first place. What an outrageous thought. They were sold out for the gospel that it didn't matter what location, it didn't matter their circumstances, they were going to go about proclaiming Christ. We too, today, need ordinary people doing outrageous things. We need people that will do things for the Lord, where people will say, that seems strange, why would you do that? Why would you give up this opportunity to pursue something for God? Why would you give your money instead of keeping your money for yourself? Why will we do the things that the world says is outrageous because we serve an awesome God? And this church at Antioch knew that, and they said, it is not outrageous because if God is for us, who can be against us? So they start a church, and they start proclaiming Christ. Number two, now we need ordinary people to do outrageous things for God. We also need people who see suffering as an opportunity to shine. So again, let's remember, why have they scattered? Verse 19, because of the persecution. At some point, at a time they did not see coming, they were living in peace, they were going about their jobs, they were living life with their family, and then at some point in their life, someone started banging on the door, Breaking in, grabbing your family, grabbing your children, maybe taking dad away, taking your property, doing whatever they have to to scare you, to compel you to stop preaching Christ. Now I want you to know, it would seem from a human standpoint, totally understandable 
for these people to run for their lives and then to find a place in Antioch where they could live, find a job and all of that, and build within their lives a bunker mentality. Listen, we're going to live life, but we're going to do so in a quiet way. We're not going to ruffle any feathers. We're going to just keep to ourselves. Because when we were big on Jesus, when we were uh, telling others about Jesus, it got us into trouble. And we don't need anybody coming to our house and taking Junior away. We don't need anybody uh, having uh, Dad lose his job because he preaches Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to isolate ourselves and we're going to keep ourselves quiet because being a, a up-and-front Christian, being one who is uh, open about our Christianity didn't get us anywhere. It got us refugee status. But these people don't see it that way. They see the loss of their home. The loss of their jobs. They see the loss of maybe family members and friends. They see the the need to have to transition into a new area. To relocate. To give up all that you knew and were comfortable with. For a new problem and a new uh, situation in Antioch. They didn't see it as a problem. They saw it as an opportunity. And we need to see that as well. In our comfort... In our ease, we need to be a people who recognize that God uses suffering for a reason. And what we need to recognize is that the reason for it is that we can shine in ways in suffering that we can't when we're comfortable. And we need to recognize this morning as a church and as individuals, God is going to bring suffering into our lives, things that we don't make any sense to us, Problems that seemingly all they do is trip us up. And the reason why he's doing that is not so that we can become shell-shocked and, and, and uh, hide and retreat in our shells or in our homes, but so that we may use those opportunities to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. I've seen this in our church family. When medical reports that should demoralize an individual have caused them to praise God. When layoffs... And financial woes have allowed people to shine by trusting God for their daily bread. We've seen it over and over again. But one of the greatest examples that I saw was in my own home growing up. Now I've shared this before, but when I was 14 years of age, my brother died in a car accident. My older brother, he was 16, a senior in high school. And the day that he died was September 17th, 1990. Beautiful day, a day that we would all love to have right now. Sunny and gorgeous. And uh, we had gotten the news that Chris had died. We went and had to do some of the things like identifying his body and, and all of that. We had just been to the morgue at Mercy Hospital. And uh, we were coming home. And I remember sitting in the car and there were some church people that were, were with us as we were traveling. And my thoughts were, my parents who had been incredibly faithful people, surely this would cause them to curse God and leave him. Because that's how I was feeling. I mean, my... My parents were wonderful Christian people, and what kind of God would, would, would hurt his people, his, his, some of his most devout followers? What kind of God would do that, take their son, 16 years of age? And I was wrestling with that and watching my parents and trying to figure out when are they going to crack? When is this going to fall apart? And then we're driving home. We get on our country road where we live, and my brother's best friend 
lived three doors down from us. And in front of his home and along the, high, the, the uh, road where we live, dozens upon dozens of cars are lined up on both sides of the street beyond where our house is at. And it dawned on us that many of the students that had gotten word on that Monday at school that Chris had died, they had released the entire senior class and, and uh, allowed them to go and they did a, a small vigil of about a hundred students at the neighbor's house, at his, his friend's house. Of which my dad, when we pull into the parking lot, says, Tim, now just remember this, okay? And my dad is an ordinary man. My mom, they're ordinary, regular people. My dad says, Tim, I want you to go over to Brandon's house and I want you to tell all the kids to come here. Why? Why, dad? I mean, you just lost your son. The apple of your eye, you've you've lost. You've just seen his lifeless body. What are you going to do? And he says, just go. Go get them. And so I go, and, and I go to Brandon's house, and they're all there crying, and they're all there trying to, as high schoolers, as we all do, just wrestle with why has this happened. And, and I told the kids, I said, my parents want you to come down to the house. And they begin to make their trek. And I can remember it like it's yesterday. And they stood out in the front yard of our home, and my dad and mom stood at the porch. And my dad a guy that owned a grocery store started to preach Christ to a bunch of kids. And he starts telling them that Chris loved Jesus and that Jesus was his life and Jesus is our life. And that day, over a dozen kids came to know Jesus. My dad said after he left, I'm sitting there going, Dad, you should be grieving. And he says, well, how can we grieve when heaven is having a party? Because what happened was suffering came into the Badal home. And I can assure you, my father said, we would have never had the entire senior class in our front yard if God hadn't taken Chris. And he had to do that so that an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine. And those kids are still walking. They're not kids anymore. We're old people now. But, but they're walking with the Lord. Because suffering sometimes has to take place. And the church at Antioch knew that, God, you've ruined my life from an earthly perspective. They could have said that. And some of us have uttered those words. Remember Job's friends. Remember Job's wife. Curse God and die. These trials aren't worth it. But Christians recognize that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so when suffering comes, the Christian says, listen, my job isn't to be shell-shocked. My job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, whether in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or Antioch, the uttermost parts of the world. And God may be creating an opportunity for you and I to suffer so that we might shine with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians recognize those opportunities. And what this group did is they took suffering. And listen, their suffering is the reason why we're here today. Because from that church, churches were started all over the world, and it was a church of Gentiles, and we're a church of Gentiles, and we are here today because of the church at Antioch. And they started because of suffering. We need ordinary people to do outrageous things. We need to see suffering as an opportunity to shine. We need to stop simply playing church and start strategically pointing people 
to Christ, our community to Christ. So here's a group of people, ordinary people, no-name people, and they're running for their lives, and they're going from places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Cyrene. They're just finding anywhere where they can land, anywhere. That's what refugees do, right? Anywhere where we can land, wherever someone will, will give us an opportunity to, to have life, we're going to go there. And they find themselves in Antioch. And what they could have done, and what we are tempted to do when suffering comes, is to find a group of people like us, and just do church together. And so they start to do this. Notice in the text, notice the text tells us how it all starts out. It tells us in verse 19 that there were some who were just simply speaking the word to no one else except Jews. I'm going to find people like me. And I'm going to find the four or more people, and it's just going to be us. And we're going to do church, and, and we're going to live out our traditions, and we're going to live out our, our customs, and we're going to sing our songs and pray our prayers. But we're not going to be offensive-minded. We're going to be defensive-minded. It's going to be about us four and no more. But that's not what happens. Notice that they get there. And in coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, people that don't even believe the way they do, and they start preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, we live in a world just as the people in Antioch did, in a world of debauchery and sin. And it's really easy for us to isolate ourselves from the world. To see ourselves as a part of the world only in body, not in spirit, not in soul. And so we go to work for a paycheck, we go to school for an education, we, we live in our communities for the sake that we got to have a house and all of that. But as Christians, we're called to far more than that. But what that's going to mean is we're going to have to engage the world. And this group of people found themselves not giving up or closing themselves off, but engaging in an offensive thing. Notice, they preached Christ. Instead of looking inward, they're looking outward. Instead of worrying about their own comfortability, they're worrying about the salvation of others. Now I want you to notice, because right away you'll say, well yeah, but they're the church in Acts. But notice in our text, no mention of miracles in the church of Antioch. No mention of speaking in tongues or other ecstatic gifts. Ordinary people doing what you and I in the 21st century can do as ordinary people, preach Christ. And what happens? Many come to know Jesus. Listen, if we see our workplaces as a harvest field, if we see our communities as a harvest field, if we see our families as a harvest field, if we see our friends as a harvest field, our conversation, our work ethic, our existence will look so much different as followers of Jesus Christ than us just going through the motions. And when we do that, it will change people. This last week I endured a terrible baseball game in the rain, and I was talking with a man and we were talking about things of the Lord. And I was telling him about what the Lord is teaching me and engage with that guy and, and talking with him. And I want you to know in the first service he was here. And if you were in the first service and you could see it, and everybody did, at the end of the first service he ran up here 
to the podium. And he says, something's happening. Something's happening. He said, Tim, I'm not there yet, but something's happening. And I want you to know, if we're true to the gospel, some may hate our guts. Remember, they left because of persecution. But there will be some who will come and will come to know Jesus when we preach Christ. Don't simply be involved in just playing church. Here, we play church at times in our ease and our comfort. We go through the motions. But Village Bible Church does not exist for your or my comfort, but for the Great Commission. And so we've got to be sent out. Listen, we are more the church out there than we are in here. Because we are called to leave this place fired up to go and be the church in all of the places where God has called us to be. And so we've got to start looking at our strategic places where God has placed us and say, God, you've got me here for a reason. I'm here for my neighbor. I'm here for my friends. I'm here for my school. I'm here for the workplace that I call my job. I'm here to be a light in a world of darkness. Antioch was not simply playing church or Christian, but they were strategically reaching their community for Christ. Next observation. The church wasn't just about getting bigger, but about growing deeper. Three times in our text, we see Luke talking numbers. In verse 21, a great number. In verse 23 and 25, twice he says a great many people. And there are some right away that say, yep, the church of Antioch, they are on fire because they're growing. And there's a group of people that will look at this text and say that they can determine the health of the church simply by its growth. We, we, we have lots of books that are written in our bookstores by them. We have a lot of them uh, on Christian radio and all that. They're a part of what is called the church growth movement. And if you can make something bigger, it inevitably comes better. Well, they're wrong. Because there's a whole lot of great big churches that aren't doing a single thing for the Lord. But then, on the other side, there are those who will say, no, what numbers mean are numbers mean that something's bad. You've watered down the truth. You've you've, uh, allowed uh, culture to come in more than you have the Scriptures. And, and, And really what we want is we want small. We want intimate. And, And we won't say that because of texts like this, but we'll talk about it this way. As, as a church grows, we'll say, well, the church doesn't have the feel like it used to. Or, or you know what, I'm not sure I like the church anymore because I don't know everybody's name. And, and deep down inside, some of those comments, if, if taken and, and, and allowed to get out of hand, would literally say, you know what, what we need to do is we need to lock the doors and not let anybody else come in. Because it's about my comfort. It's about that I want to know everybody. It's about the feel that I have. And so luckily I got in on this thing at the early stages. And now I can shut and lock out the rest of the people. Because I don't want any more people. It changes my church. It changes my effect. Instead of saying, look at all these people. What an opportunity. Now I want you to know both of those pendulum swings. Or both of those places on the spectrum are both wrong. In and of themselves. Luke talks about numbers. 
And so there's something good about it because God saw fit that numbers would be a part of the game. And numbers are a part of the book of Acts. And they added to their number. And 3,000 and 200 and many were added to the number over and over again in the book of Acts. So God is concerned about numbers, but not numbers alone. And that's where he then articulates, it's not just growth of people, it's not just decisions for Jesus, it is, is there discipleship taking place? The church of Antioch grows so much that Jerusalem says, we got to send Barnabas, we'll talk about that in a moment. Barnabas gets there and he says, well, we need help training these people, so what good is it to have a whole bunch of people a part of the church of Antioch if they're not growing? And so notice in the text, Saul comes... I would have loved to have been there, by the way, on that campaign, or, uh, candidating Sunday. Uh, the elders have talked, and with Barnabas, we've made the decision that we're bringing Saul of Tarsus. Some of you uh, lost family members from this guy, okay? Some of you left your homes because of this guy. He's going to be our pastor, right? It's just It's crazy, all right? And so Saul comes in, and notice... In verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a year, a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And what was the net result of that teaching for a year? That the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, were called Christian. That was a derogatory statement that they were given. Christians, Christ folks, or Jesus people, But let me just tell you, they nailed it, right? Because they lived so much like Jesus. They walked and talked like Jesus that they gave them the name of Jesus. And so there's growth taking place. This church has grown a great deal in my years as a pastor. And that can be as a consternation to some. I know as a pastor at times, it's a consternation to me. More people... More problems. Okay? Because I've not welcomed in a perfect person yet into this mix. I'm looking for them, waiting for them, with no problems, no sin, no issues. But what keeps coming is more and more sinners like me, right? And so growth can cause us to struggle. Now, now we have not only grown numerically when we started, uh, we didn't, uh, uh, we, we quarantined most of the, the pew area because we didn't have that many here. And now we've added chairs in the back and now we've added services and now we've added campuses. My goodness, God has grown us a lot seemingly. And we could sit back and we could say, wow, look at how great we are doing. Or we could say, wow, we've got our work cut out for us. God has brought a lot of people who need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's why our job in our mission statement is to discover disciples, but not just discover a crowd. Anybody can get a crowd. We want to then develop disciples. We want to develop them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to grow them. And so week in and week out in all of our different ministries, from the youngest to the oldest, we are teaching and training so that people will grow and they'll become Christ folks. They'll become Jesus people. They'll look and they'll sound like Jesus. Now notice what it means is people need to turn to the Lord. Verse 21. They need to change the way that they come into this place, and they are. And that's one of the hardest things in a growing church is to get the stories out there. 
And we're trying more and more. One of our focuses in the upcoming years is to make the stories of life change more and more available to you because I know in a larger church you're going to miss some of those things. And we want to get those out there because lives are being changed. People are growing in ways that we could have never imagined. Next observation, it's one you're adding to your outline. We need to be a church that releases people so reproduction can take place. Verse 22. Now we go back to the church in Jerusalem. So the church of Jerusalem, here's what Antioch is doing. And the report comes back and it comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what do they do? They send Barnabas to Antioch. Now right away again we read this and we're like, yeah, he jumped on on a train and went up to uh, Antioch. Wrong. He's gone. The church of Jerusalem says, bye-bye. We're not going to be able to Facebook you. We're not going to be able to FaceTime you. We're not going to be able to talk on the phone to you. You're leaving us and you're going to them. It was a goodbye. And, and to think about Barnabas, first of all, leaving the comfortability of a wonderful church, doing wonderful things, he gets up and he leaves to go be a part of a fledgling church that he's heard some good things about, but he has no idea when he gets there, is it as good as the people make it out to be? The church in Jerusalem does a faith-filled thing because they give one of the best of their leaders. Barnabas is one of the best in Jerusalem. Might I add, the foolishness from a human perspective, the church of Jerusalem gives up one of its biggest givers and sends them to Antioch. Acts chapter 4. Barnabas has a piece of property, sells it and takes the proceeds and gives it to the apostles. And so the most generous guy, the greatest encourager, the best of the best, Jerusalem says, listen, for the gospel to go forth in greater ways in Antioch, we've got to become a little less so they can become a little more. This is why I love Village. Because it could have been really, really easy for us to create a bigger and larger church here in Sugar Grove. But what we have done is we've started releasing people. And we've released them, I want you to see, in three ways. Number one, we've released them for ministry. For ministry. In our church, as the church continues to grow, we don't sit there and say, how can we make a name for the Sugar Grove campus? What we have done is sent some of our best and brightest leaders off to other campuses. We just did that, Sugar Grove. We just sent off Pastor Steve. Now, he's not the first one to do it. We sent off Pastor uh, David and Emily to our Aurora campus. We sent Pastor Phil to our Indian Creek campus. And we are sending leaders. We sent Jacob Hayes and and Jenny out to uh, Plano. and, And young and old, we're sending leaders off. And we're saying, listen, we would love to keep you here. It's really comfortable to keep you here. But the gospel is bigger than Sugar Grove. And so we're going to send you to other places so that the gospel can be reproduced. And, and that's what this whole adoption ministry is about as churches. We cannot just bottle it and keep it here. We've got to do what the church in Jerusalem and Antioch did. And that is release it. I don't know if you understand. Jerusalem started its second campus in Antioch. Same leadership, same mission, same direction, interchangeability of leaders. I'll be honest with you, you don't see that in local churches that are, are, are doing their own thing. You see that in multi-site churches like Village. 
where we're sending off our people into new missional outposts to do the work of the Lord. Hard on the church that sends. But what it tells us is we are not the only show in town. There's other ministry going on. There are other people that need to be reached. Now, let's broaden it. We do it in ministry. We do it in missions. If you've never done it, examine our missions program. You probably should because uh, almost 25% of of what is given um, in one way, shape, or form is released to other places outside of the Sugar Grove campus. And so you have a vested interest to understand that your money is going to other places. But I want you to look sometime at the mission wall or go to our mission uh, place on the website or mission page on the website because I want you to recognize that what we're reading about in the church of, of Jerusalem and Antioch is true for village as well and that is we have sent people talk about ordinary people doing outrageous things there have been people just like you in previous years sitting in the same places where you're sitting today who have had an outrageous thought that not only could I be comfortable here as a Christ follower but Lord you're working in my heart to go to the uttermost places of the world And what have we done? We have released those people from our very midst to go and preach not to areas in the Fox Valley area where we can still see them and have lunch with them, but to the uttermost parts of the world. Village people who have become missionaries. We've seen it with Chad and Julie Reeser in Spain. We've seen it with uh, Leighton and Jenny Helwig in the Philippines. We've seen it with Lisa O'Brien in Uganda and Megan Kirkland, who now is Megan Rowland in Alaska. Many of our missionaries were sitting where you are sitting today. And through a message or through a fellowship or through a time, God worked in their life and said, God is calling me to something greater. And we want to release them. We want to release them to go and do that work. So ministry missions and i'm going to do one you're like well what's the next one i got those two the third one through moving through moving just read an article Thirty-nine thousand people in 2017 left illinois bye-bye and they went to places like texas and north carolina and georgia and tennessee where it's always sunny and it's always nice and and taxes are low and right we can go on and on we hate those people on facebook because they leave us and then they show us pictures of 70 degree days in february and they're kind of like talking back nanana boo boo i live in paradise most of our governors are not in prison where we live We pay more on our mortgage than we do our taxes. I digress, okay? And they leave. And as a pastor, listen, we have lost more people to moving than anything else in this church. In the last two weeks, I've heard of four of our regular attending families that say, Hey, Tim, we are in the midst of transition. And I just want to cry in front of them. This is so sad. Come on, we're just, man, we've invested, I feel at times like a parent who invests 18 years in the kid's life and then the kid takes off and you you know, it's like all that investment and everything and now I'm going to have to watch from afar the investment I had. And And I really struggled with that. 
And I've struggled with that because there's nothing you can do about it. And they've been transitioned and all of that. And then, and then on Thursday, I'm looking through this text and God hits me right between the eyes and says, Pastor, your job isn't to keep them. Your, pa- your job as a pastor is to release them. And so grow them and you don't worry about where I put them. And so you and your, and the elders, you guys grow them and minister to them because what, what may be needed in Tennessee, what may be needed in Georgia, what may, it's hard to say this, but what may be needed in Texas is someone to encourage a church. Maybe there's a pastor that needs to be ministered to. Maybe there's a community that doesn't have a gospel presence like it should. And so you guys seemingly have got things under control here in Sugar Grove, I hope that we could release a couple people, even if it's by moving, that we grow and develop disciples for Jesus Christ so that if God deems it necessary to take that person because of a job change or family situation, that they might be released and we might send them off and say, it isn't just a move. It isn't just a job transfer. It is a strategic positioning of God himself for you, the believer, to win that new place with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should rejoice in that. Not grow sad because our friends now are farther away. Ministry. Missions. And moving. We have to be a church that releases people. And that is a very uncomfortable thing to do. A couple more and then I'll release you. Next observation that I have from the text. We must be encouraging each other to endure. We must be encouraging each other to endure. Verse 23, Barnabas shows up. And I think that the church of Antioch could have been like, this is upper management. They're coming to evaluate. They're coming to inspect. And what does he see? He doesn't come to inspect. He doesn't come to evaluate. It says that when he gets there, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now I can assure you the church of Antioch wasn't doing everything the same as the church in Jerusalem. We know it's a church full of Gentiles already. And the church in Jerusalem was primarily Jewish. So there's a lot of changes that have gone on. Now, Barnabas could have easily gotten upset about it, but he doesn't. He sees the grace of God in people. And what a reminder for us to see the grace of God at work, not our own prejudices and and preferences. But notice what he does. He encourages it. So he uses the word exhorts them. It means strongly encouraged. Strongly encouraged to do what? Remain faithful. To remain faithful. Why do we need to remain faithful? Because these people were struggling hardships in life. And some of you are suffering hardships in life. And what you need when you come to church is not an I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. What we need to hear is it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a world of temptation and sin. And what you need from your pulpit and what you need from your elders and what you need in your small group are people that say, keep fighting the good fights. Keep running the race. And we need to be encouraging one another because it is easy to give up and not endure. Finally, we need to aggressively pursue the spiritual while addressing the temporal. Verses 27 through 30 says some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stands up and tells by the Spirit a great famine is going to take place. And it does. And the church of Antioch could have put on its blinders and said, you know what, we're about discipleship. 
We're about spiritual things, and that's a temporal thing. I'll be honest with you, and I'll just, I'll just be quite frank with you. An individual came to me uh, a couple weeks ago and said, I was really bothered by something that took place in a church service. And I said, okay. They said, we had uh, an announcement for people to sign up to run the marathon. That's dumb. I said, well, yes, running marathons is dumb. I, I agree with you. But then they said, why in the world would a church that's so focused in on the gospel seek to raise funds for clean water? And I stopped there for a moment. And this person isn't very active in our church. And so I had the opportunity to speak honestly with them, and I said it this way, and you can judge your pastor or not. And I said, well, marathons are awesome if they're done for the glory of God. And how much greater is it that we might have Christians amidst those marathon runners to share the good news of Jesus Christ? And three... If our friends in Africa and, and, and other places in the world don't have clean water, they'll die. And if they die, they'll go to hell. And if clean water keeps them alive for another day for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be shared with them, then it's a win, 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 win. Okay? Yeah. And so we need to recognize we can get so overly spiritual that if we're not just handing out tracts, if we're not preaching Christ every day, listen, if they're dead, they can't hear our preaching of Christ. And so we need to minister to them. So there's a famine in the land. And the people say, we've got to raise money for them. Because if we don't raise money for them, they'll die. And if they die, then that opportunity is lost. And so there's some temporal things. Now listen, you can create a whole social gospel and that all you do is hand out water to everybody and never talk about the gospel, right? That's not what we're doing. We're locked in on the gospel, but when needs come, temporal needs come, whether it's because of hurricanes or tornadoes or, or famines, we're going to do everything in our power to reach out in those ways because temporal needs produce opportunities for us to share spiritual needs of the people around us. Are we the church that Antioch was? Are we a people like these people in Antioch. Let me close, and I'm just going to read my notes, and we're closing. So let me just read this paragraph just from the heart of your pastor. It is a great privilege to serve at this church. I have watched in the last 15 years this church move from a dysfunctional and divided church to a major force, not only in our community, but throughout the world. And I see on the horizon... As difficult as it may be for us to experience, God expanding this ministry, not reducing it. But lest we be filled with pride or arrogance, lest we look back at all that has been built and say, we have done it, let us learn the all-important quality of the church of Antioch. The hand of the Lord was with them. And we will need that hand of the Lord moving forward. Our impact and reach in this world will only go as far as the hand of God's grace. So let us pray that God would grace us with His presence and His power so that we might reach our community, so that we might reach our schools, so we might reach the workplaces 
and the co-workers so that we might reach our families and friends and produce not a ministry that's a flash in the pan, but a ministry that has a lasting legacy, not only in the Fox Valley area, but all over the world. That's why we exist. That's why God has saved us, so that we might go on the mission of saving others with the gospel of Jesus Christ.